Well, good morning again, and uh, I know we have guests with us today, and just want to say welcome. So glad you're here. If you don't know me, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, I get to bring God's Word to us today, so I'm always thrilled to do that. And uh, we're a a Bible-teaching, Bible-preaching church here. We try to teach right out of the Scriptures, and we're in a series in the book of Romans. We're in Romans, the New Testament book of Romans, chapter 12, so if you've got a Bible or a device You can go there, and uh, there's also a study guide in your worship folder that you can pull out, and you can follow along with me. You know, back in the mid-80s, before our little church planting team uh, picked up and moved from Virginia to here in Columbus, before we ever made that move, we took several field trips up here to kind of scout things out, look for housing and so forth, and on one of those trips... We piled everybody in the van and we went downtown Columbus to the State House and uh, took a tour of the State House there. And I remember our tour guide was a, a college student, a young man, I think he was an OSU student, and uh, he led us through the halls of government there at the State House, showing us all the different sites and telling us some funny stories. I remember at one point we kind of stopped and we told him that we were all Christians. There was about 11 of us. And we were all followers of Jesus, and we were planning to move up here, move to Columbus and start a brand new church here. And then we asked him if he'd had any experience with church or with Christian people at all. And I remember he looked at us and said, "Uh, yeah, I know some Christians. And I thought, oh no, here we go. Here it comes, another sad story of Christian hypocrites turning somebody off to God. But uh, instead, he surprised us, and he said, "Um, yeah, I know some Christians, and, excuse me, there's something different about them. And he did this. He said, it's like they're, they're together, and, and they really seem to love each other. And I breathed a sigh of relief, and I'm like, Phew. thank you, God. Thank you that the Christian people that this guy had encountered in his life were the real deal. And they'd left him with that impression rather than souring him on Christianity. Thank you that those Christian believers were full of love. You know, Jesus said in John 13, 35, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love. Love one for another. And I got to thinking about us here in our church. What do we want to be known for? If we're we're known for anything, what do we want to be known for? Do we want, want to be known for our nice building here, our facilities? Do we want to be known for our great staff? Do we want to be known for our our programs or our doctrinal? correctness. How about this? How about if, we, if we're known for anything, how about if we become known for our love? For our love. That's what Jesus said. Don't get me wrong, I like our building. <laughs> it gets used a lot for a, a bunch of good stuff. I understand there was a mother-daughter banquet in here yesterday with lots of great sharing and lots of tears. And of course, that makes for a good mother-daughter banquet, right? Lots of crying, <laughs> weeping. I love our building, and we do have a number of great programs here that honor God and help a lot of people, and you know I'm very passionate that we rightly divide the word of truth around here and that we explain the word of God and center our teachings in the gospel, all of that, but when it comes to what we're known for by the folks out there, the people in our community, Jesus wants it to be our love. The old chorus from the Jesus people era says, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. Yes, they'll know we are Christians by our love. 
As we come to this passage today in the book of Romans in the 12th chapter, we find that it's about that very thing. It's about Christian love. It's not about the kind of love that perhaps we've grown accustomed to in our culture from movies and music and entertainment and such. The love spoken of here in Romans chapter 12 verses 9 through 21 by the the Apostle Paul is love of a different kind. It's pure love, genuine love, love without hypocrisy as it says. It speaks of a body of believers that can love other people because they themselves have been loved. They've received the love of God and so they can They can spread it to others. The love that that God demonstrated when he sacrificed his son, Jesus, for us. And so this is a love that's born of being loved. As the Apostle John would write in 1 John 4, we love because he first loved us. and We've received that love. Amen? And so if New Life Church gets known for anything, may it be the genuine heartfelt, practical expressions of love that arise from hearts that have been filled up with the love of God. Let me read you our passage for today, beginning in verse 9 of Romans chapter 12. It reads like this, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it, leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. It's interesting to me, if you were here last week, you know that the previous section talked about spiritual gifts. Do you remember that? And and the body of Christ, and how Christ has given each of us spiritual gifts to use. And it's interesting to me that right after talking about spiritual gifts, Paul felt compelled to talk about love. And that really was a pattern of his. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you have 1 Corinthians, for example, 1 Corinthians 12, which is all about spiritual gifts. And then after 1 Corinthians 12, it comes 1 Corinthians 13, which is the great love chapter, right? Where he says, I will show you a more excellent way, the way of love. So could it be that Paul wanted to keep our focus on other people and not on ourselves, that even the gifts that God has given to us are meant to be used to love and bless other people and not just puff up our own egos? And I think so. I titled this message, Rethinking Love. 
Because that's what I believe Paul is urging the church towards in this passage. And in that culture that he lived in, like in our culture, this concept of love had gotten tainted. It had gotten distorted. People's notions of what it meant to love had become influenced by the world. And we know that back in verse 2 of this same chapter, he challenged believers to not be conformed to this world, right? Don't let the world press you into its mold, he said, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I believe he's doing some more of that mind-renewing work here, specifically with reference to how we think about love. In this passage, what we see first is the big overarching theme in verse 9, followed by a whole bunch of commands. Do you see that? Like nearly 20 of them, a, a bunch of directives delivered kind of machine gun style, rapid fire, boom, 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 boom. Verse 9 in English says, let love be genuine, but in the original Greek language, there's no verb here. It just says, Genuine love, and it's like it's a, a header or a title, a banner over everything that, that is to come. And so he's talking about sincere, true, gospel-fueled love, what it looks like and how it shows up in relationships and in interactions. And what I see is that in all of those instructions, that boatload of instructions that follow, they could be grouped together into five categories of love. Here they are. Love what is good, love each other, love God, love your neighbors, and love your enemies. And when I thought about those things, I thought, well, aren't those the same things that Jesus Christ called his followers to live out? Didn't our Lord himself say, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? Sure he did. Didn't, didn't he say, love one another? In the, in the new commandment, and wasn't it our Lord who said, love your enemies and bless those who persecute you? And wasn't Jesus all about loving what is good, loving the truth? So I think Paul here is really just reinforcing the teaching of our Lord, Jesus. So I want to talk for a few moments about each of these, and we'll start with loving what is good. Loving what is good, or you could say it this way, developing an intense commitment to embracing goodness. That first little phrase there, or a second one, I guess, it says, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. If we're going to become the genuinely loving body of believers that Jesus calls us to be, we must learn to love what is good. This is a mark of growing Christians. Did you know that? This is a mark of maturing believers. They increasingly not just choose what is good, but love what is good. Literally to hold fast to it, to embrace it. Actually, the word there, hold fast, literally means to become glued to it, become attached to what is good. Embrace it, cherish it, treasure it. And what is this good that we are called to love. Well, there's no mystery here. Paul already told us what is good. If you look back at verse 2 of the same chapter, he said, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here it is, the will of God. So you know what is good? God's will is good. What God wants is good. 
Everything that God desires, that is what is good. That is what we are called to love. Love what is good. Can I just make a couple observations from, from this little phrase here? It tells me there is such a thing as good and evil, right? Abhor what is evil, cling, hold fast to what is good. There is such a thing as good and evil. Second observation is these are not subjectively defined by each individual person or even by society at large, by what the majority thinks. These are objective realities that are defined by our Creator God. What's good is what God thinks is good. What's evil is what God says is evil. And you've got to know this is a controversial notion in our culture this day. And then I noted this. To love something, it says, abhor what is evil, love or cling to what is good. To love something is by definition to hate its opposite, right? To hate what is contrary to it or to, to, to hate what threatens it. So if I love truth, I'm going to hate lies and error. If I love good, I'll hate evil. If I love God, I'll hate his rival, Satan. If I love life, I'll hate death. You can't truly love without hating what threatens the object of your love. Isn't that true? And so he says both, doesn't he? Abhor what's evil, hate what's evil, but hold fast to what is good. So for some people, rethinking what love is is going to be, mean rethinking this, rethinking this concept of absolute, objective truth regarding what is good and what isn't. Because what we don't find in the Bible, what we don't find in the Bible is the popular notion of our day that whatever anybody chooses to love is good. We don't see that. We don't see that good and evil come from inside of us and are actually defined by our personal preferences or choices. That's the prevailing worldview, I think, in the last 60 years or so, is that good and evil are internal, individual, subjective realities established by each person. This is the cult of personal autonomy that we've talked about. This is the you have your truth and I've got my truth idea. But we should not be fooled by the spirit of this age. There are absolutes. Absolute good does exist and absolute evil does exist. Some things are objectively good and other things are not, regardless of how people feel about them. Listen, genuine love, genuine love, the kind of love talked about here, does not love everything, is not open to every new progressive idea that comes down the pike, doesn't embrace every politically correct notion that our culture latches onto. Genuine love means discovering what God says is good and clinging to that, being glued to that, cherishing that, and hating its opposite. That requires renewing of the mind for some people to start thinking that way. So love what is good. And then there's this call to love each other, to love one another, or in other words, to cultivate a family-like devotion and affection for fellow members of the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. And much of what we see in this passage is a call to love other people in the church in very practical ways. He talks, you saw this, right? Showing hospitality, so opening up our homes to each other, enjoying meals together. Uh, he talks about caring for each other's needs. He talks about sharing each other's highs and lows, right? He says, rejoice with those who are rejoicing and 
Weep with those who are weeping. Enter into their world. Share those emotions. When you hurt, I hurt. When you're rejoicing, that becomes my joy. We also see here this idea of showing solidarity or identifying with those among us who are lowly, it says. It says associate with the lowly. We might think of the outcasts, the unpopular, the disenfranchised. We could probably include in here the those who struggle with mental illness, those who've suffered trauma and, and, and carry PTSD around with them, those who struggle with physical handicap issues, those among us who have been abused. And Paul is saying, when you encounter someone like that, that's your brother. Care for him. That's your sister, he's saying. Love her. She's your sister in Christ. Love her. Care for her. Your family, that's what families do. They care for each other. He mentions seeking harmony in relationships and living in peace with each other. And of course, that means addressing the inevitable conflicts that are going to arise in the course of life and to address them and deal with them head on and not just sweep them under the rug, right? Keep our hearts clear of resentment. I had an example of that just this week. There was a a lady who reached out to me via email and then phone call, she said, I, Pastor Steve, I need to get together with you. And so we did. We met together this week. And we chit-chatted for a while and then had prayer, and then we got to the reason she was there. She said, um, I've recently read a book called The Bait of Satan. The Bait of Satan. And she said it's, it's all about Satan's tactic of getting us to take on offense towards somebody else. And she said, as I read this book and I prayed about it, the Lord brought several people to mind whom I had, had resentment against because I'd taken offense against them. And she looked at me and she said, and you were one of those people. And she said, I'm just coming to ask you to forgive me for holding an offense against you. And I said, what did I do? How did I hurt you? And she said, it's not really about that, Steve. It's, it's just the Lord has prompted me. I'm just here to ask for your forgiveness for holding offense against you. And I was able to look her in the eye and say, I forgive you. What did I do? <laughs> what did I say? And so she thought about it for a minute and she came up with uh, two things that had happened about 15 years ago. And uh, she brought them to my attention and I was able to hear her and own those things and say, yes, that, that is true. And, and I said, now, will you forgive me? And she said, I forgive you. And we had a great time forgiving each other, praying together. We hugged as a brother and sister in Christ. And she said, I just want you to know I feel so free now. All that that was inside is gone, and I'm free. Isn't that good? That's what we're talking about here. Genuine love requires that. This family love, loving each other in the family, making things right, dealing with the issues that are going to come up between us. They just are. It's just the course of life but having the courage to address those like she did. Talks about loving each other in the family with brotherly affection, with sisterly affection. I love Paul's idea that he says here, you saw this, where he says, outdo one another in showing honor. Did you see that? Outdo one another in showing honor. If you're going to compete, if you're going to be in a contest, let it be who can honor each other the most. And this is something that's, a lost art, I think, in our culture, honoring others. Certainly in public discourse in our day, honoring is almost invisible. It's disappeared. It's vanishing quickly, isn't it? 
But for the body of Christ, for the body of believers that, that wants to follow Jesus and become a genuinely loving body, this is so important. Let's do our part in this church to hold others in high regard just because they've been made in the image of God. Regardless of their behavior or what they do or how they treat us, people deserve honor and respect just because they're made in the image of God, stamped with the divine image. There's value in that. Love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, our Lord said, that you have love one for another. And then third, love God. Love God. Some of these directives and commands could be grouped into that category. You say it this way, pursue a passionate spirituality that is eager to serve God with joy and perseverance, even in the hard times, and with continual dependence upon Him in prayer. I get that from verses 11 and 12 where it says, Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and be constant in what? Prayer. And I just want to say I am so proud to be a part of this church family. I really am. I brag on you to other people and other pastors and so forth. So many of you in this congregation really do love God. Really sincerely do. You're not perfect. You don't claim that. But your, your passion is for the Lord. And our Lord really does desire to be loved. Did you know that? He wants to be loved. He doesn't need to be loved, but He desires to be loved. And when I see these words here, these, these descriptive words that Paul uses to describe the kind of love that God desires, words like zeal and fervent, I'll tell you where my mind goes. My mind goes to another passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 3 where Jesus has a message for a church, and it's the church of Laodicea. And he says this to them, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. I would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and not cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. He says, it's repulsive to me. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm loving you, I'm, I'm loving you by telling you this, he's saying. So be zealous and repent Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, some of you have that Revelation 3.20, that verse on a plaque in your home somewhere, right? In the hallway, perhaps. But that, that, that whole I'm standing at the door and knocking phrase, that is not in context. It's not an invitation to lost people to open the door and let Jesus into their lives. It's an invitation to saved church members. It's Jesus saying, even though you've let your love for me grow cold, even though we've been distant, there is a way back. And it's the way of repentance. Let me all the way back in and I will come in and we'll commune together and I will reignite your spiritual passion so that you're hot for God, on fire for God. Paul says, be fervent in spirit. That word means boiling over with spiritual passion. So I got to ask the question, right? Are you hot for God? Is there a fire burning in your heart for Him? When, for, when we sing, for example, like we did a few moments ago, when we sing to the Lord, is there something deep within your heart that wells up within you and you say, yes, Lord, yes, you're worthy of this. You're worthy of all of my praise and my life and so much more. Is it like that for you? 
Is it like that for you? Would anybody who knows you, who lives with you or works with you, would they say that you're zealous for God, like it says here, or would they say that you're fervent in spirit? Do you have a fire in your belly for God, for His Word, for people, for the kingdom of God, for people to come to know Jesus? Look, I know we all have seasons in our lives where the fire has died down a bit, right? I I have that. I was sick for like two and a half weeks. I was talking to Helen over here, and and it's like during that season, I was just, it was just survival, right? Not revival, just survival. And my fire waned a bit. I mean, stuff happens in life. You're, you're, you're going along and the wind gets knocked out of you. Things happen. You can lose your spiritual vitality. I think the question is, how, how do you get it back? How do I get back to that place, Lord, where, where my, my heart burns? fellowship of the burning hearts, one man called it. And Jesus gave us the way. He said, repent to that church, that lukewarm church in Laodicea. Repent, he said. Own your lukewarmness. Own your spiritual condition. Confess it. Then open the door of your heart and invite Jesus back in to take his rightful place. Let him come in and commune with you. And then I would add add this or say this, get around other people who are hot for God. My professor in Bible college called it the hot poker theory. You know, the fireplace poker thing? He said, you know, when you feel your passion for God is is waning, it's dying out, be intentional about getting around people who are on fire and let their enthusiasm, let their zeal for the Lord rekindle your own blaze. Like placing that fireplace poker down into the hot embers. And it starts to heat up, and if you leave it there long enough, it'll start turning an orange glow like those embers, right? You get hot for God by putting yourself around people who are hot for God. Some things are more caught than taught, and I think spiritual passion is one of those things. And so I'm a pastor, and I talk to people about stuff like this, and I just want to mention, during the summertime, the weather starts getting nicer, and You plan things, and some people get really casual about gathering together for worship with other believers. They get kind of a cavalier attitude about it, and, you know, it's kind of a hit-and-miss thing. And and I would just say this, if, if you choose to do that, should you be surprised if your fire diminishes, your fire for the Lord, if you're not around other people who are on fire for God? Should you be surprised that you become lukewarm towards the Lord? I think not. There's a reason why the writer of Hebrews instructs us to not neglect meeting together like some are in the habit of doing, but rather encouraging or challenging each other. And he says, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. What day is that? The day of the return of Jesus when we'll see him. So this here on weekends... It's a great time for getting around brothers and sisters who who love the Lord, whose fire for God is still burning in their hearts. In fact, some of you are so white hot for God that if others get too close, they might get scorched. But that's okay. Some of us could use a good scorching in that regard. Love God. And then this, love your neighbors. A number of these instructions pertain to that, loving loving our neighbors, seeking to build harmonious, peaceful relationships with the people around us through humble 
and honoring interactions. A couple weeks ago, I was on my way home. I was listening to one of those drive time programs on the radio, one of those call-in shows, you know. And uh, the host was asking people to call in and share what bugged them about their neighbors. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of funny, and it prompted me to go home and go online and, and look up the top 10 ways that neighbors can be annoying. <laughs> and I just thought I'd share them with you. Number one, loud, obnoxious arguments on their front porch. Number two, blocking your driveway with their car. Number three, using their front yard like most people use their backyard. <laughs> you know, put a pool out there and a garden. And Number four, allowing their yard to resemble the local landfill. Number five, not caring that stuff from their yard has blown over into your yard. Number six is the opposite, when their yard could, could be on the cover of a magazine, you know, perfectly manicured, their beds are weeded all the time, and you're thinking, man, my, my yard looked pretty good, I thought, until next door. And uh, Number seven, playing their music too loud. Number eight, letting their dog out and being totally oblivious to the nonstop barking that shatters the serenity of your neighborhood. Number nine, being uh, them being oblivious that their noisy, out-of-control kids are causing a major disturbance on the street. And number 10, letting their pet do their business on your property with not one thought of cleaning, that, cleaning it up. Well, really, those are first world problems, right? <laughs> I share them with you not to make you annoyed at your neighbors, but to make you aware of what you might be doing that irritates them. <laughs> so you can change things up and love them better like God's word instructs us. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another, in harmony and do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Like the guy I heard about who took his neighbor's dog, has done his business on his lawn, and he got a scooper and went over and picked it up and went over and put it on his neighbor's front porch. <laughs> it says, don't do that. Don't do that. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Love your neighbors. I love what we're doing here in this church through uh, the, the Neighborhood Bridges organization. And our own Ron Smith is spearheading that effort, just practically meeting needs in our community all the time. Hey, this person needs a washer and dryer. This person needs a bed. This person had a fire in their home. They need this or that. And so many of you are involved in helping to meet those needs. I love that. I love what we're doing in partnering with Grin, Gehanna Residents in Need, that's providing food and resources for so many people. I love the Shark Tank ideas that our own small groups have come up with, creative ways to go out into our community and bless people and love them in, in practical ways and meet needs in Jesus' name. Sometimes things come up, right? Sometimes we get crosswise with our neighbors, with others. It says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with them. As far as it depends on you, some conflicts can't be avoided, right? But we can do our part to not repay evil for evil, to live peaceably with them. That's the way of Christ. That's the way of love. We should probably expand our understanding of the word neighbor to include not just the people who live right next door, but for all those that we live nearby. And really, to be true to the word, it, it's also the people we work with, people we're around every day, right? And I'm sure there's a top 10, top 10 list of ways our coworkers get on our nerves too. 
But again, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our care for them. Amen? So love what is good, love each other, love God, love your neighbor. And then finally, he goes to that difficult place where you don't like to go, where so many of us struggle, and that's love your enemies. Love your enemies, those who've hurt us, those who've wounded us. And reject the inclination to retaliate when treated unjustly or unfairly, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil through faith and active concern. I don't know about you, I need to be reminded that this is how my Lord lived. This is how Jesus lived. By the power of the Holy Spirit, your Lord and mine, Jesus, loved his enemies, didn't he? He loved rebels like me, who, who, who want to be our own God. And it says, but while we were yet sinners, not while we were lovely or lovable, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's loving your enemies. I think of him when he was hanging on the cross and, and while those Roman soldiers were driving huge spikes into his wrists and into his, his feet, what was he praying for them? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When you can bless your enemies that way, when you can pray from the heart for your enemies while they're hurting you that way, you'll know you're following the way of Christ. So Jesus Christ is our example, our inspiration, our motivation, our source of strength for loving our enemies, those who have mistreated and wounded us. Verse 19, he says, Beloved, which is interesting because he's just reminding them, you're loved by God. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it. Leave it to the wrath of God. I love those two words, leave it. Don't take revenge yourself. Leave it. Where? Leave it with God. Let God take care of it, right? For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He's the one who's going to make all things right one day. He's the one who's going to execute justice in this world. He says, don't, don't take vengeance. But verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Wow. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, refuse to allow the wrongs that have been done to you to take you out, to debilitate you, to fill your heart with bitterness and resentment and anger. Instead, overcome that evil done to you by what? Leaving it, leaving justice in God's hands, and by treating that individual the way that Jesus would caring for them, being attentive to what they need, and taking action even to meet those needs. Now, I know this. This is not hypothetical for any of us in this room. Who among us has never in our life been hurt or wounded by somebody, by their, their action or inaction or their sharp, jagged words that left a, a scar in our hearts? Who among us has never been hurt by the sting of rejection or abandonment or neglect or being overlooked? Who hasn't been mistreated by somebody in some fashion or form? A dad, a mom, a sibling, a brother or sister, a cousin, an uncle, a teacher or a coach, a priest, a pastor, a youth pastor. Who hasn't been hurt by a friend or a boss or a coworker or a son 
or a daughter? Who hasn't gotten wounded by an interaction and felt that instinctive reaction to lash out at them, to make them pay, to hurt them back so they can at least feel a fraction of the pain that they inflicted on us? We all have, right? We've all experienced that. And just as an aside, you know what some of us did in the wake of being hurt like that? You know what some of us did? We made a vow, didn't we? We made a vow. We said to nobody in particular, I will never, ever let that happen to me again. I will never put myself in that position again to be hurt like that. Like the old saying, hurt me once, shame on you. Hurt me twice, shame on me. And we put up these walls, these thick walls of self-protection around our hearts, right? We layer our hearts with with calluses to keep from ever getting hurt again. This is just a self-preservation instinct that we all have. The problem is it's those same walls, those same thick and strong walls that will likely prevent us from ever truly receiving love again, even from God. Because we won't let anybody in. Nor are we going to take the risk of opening up our hearts and loving somebody else again. We did that and we got burned and it didn't feel very good, did it? So for some people in this room, it occurs to me on this Mother's Day that that's the situation with you and your mom. And you're not close and things are not right. This is hard for you today and it hurts and you wish things were different. Oh, how our Lord wants to heal broken, wounded hearts. Oh, how He desires to enter into our pain into our woundedness, and as I like to say, apply the healing salve of His grace to those tender spots in our hearts. If we'll let Him in, if we'll open the door and let Him in and trust Him. Who is it who can genuinely love their enemies, their abuser? Who can do that? Who can truly be concerned for the one who did such damage for them? Who is it that will see their enemy hungry And instead of thinking, serves them right, you know, what goes around comes around, instead of thinking that, we'll think, oh my, they're hungry. Let me go buy a bag of groceries so they won't starve. Yes, this loving action is commanded. It's called for practical need meeting is the right thing to do. But for the thinking to change... And for the heart to really be in it and for it to be sustainable, healing has got to occur. It's got to occur. And I think what's being described in this passage is a a healing community of believers where wounded hearts can be gently nursed back to health again and love can flow again, even love towards those who inflicted pain on us. Paul quotes the Old Testament here. He quotes Proverbs And he contends that when we repay evil with good, when we speak well of those who spoke evil against us, when we refuse to retaliate in kind, but instead look for ways to bless that person, then God works to arouse that person's conscience and bring about a sense of shame for what they did. That's what that phrase means, pile burning coals on their head. 
It refers to their conscience becoming awakened and filled with shame at what they did. And that kind of conviction could give them an opportunity, couldn't it? To see things as God sees them. Even perhaps to repent. Maybe they might even come to us and say, Why are you treating me so well when I've treated you so poorly? What's behind that? Why don't you hate me? Maybe they'll even want to know what's behind such unusual behavior, and we'd like to tell them, right? Well, since you asked, it's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is in me. Jesus has done a work in my heart. Man, that's how evil can be overcome by good. Well, let's dream a little bit, can we? Let's let our imaginations go for a little bit. How might our community, our city here that we live in, how might it be impacted if if God's people in this church, and not just in this church, but in all of his churches, if we live the kind of loving lifestyle that, that we've just talked about? What obstacles would be overcome? What barriers might come down? How many disheartened people would be encouraged that there actually are people who care and churches that care? Wouldn't that be great? And how many doubters and skeptics would be moved to reconsider the claims of the gospel and and what they think about God? What if the church of Jesus actually acted and interacted in such a way that we became living proof that the gospel is real? What if our works supported and reinforced our words? What if our love really was genuine? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I would say this. I'd sure like to find out. <laughs> I'd sure like to find out what impact that kind of love, unhindered, flowing out into our city could have. Church, let's be that kind of people. Amen? The hands and feet of Jesus in our city the mouthpiece, the voice of Jesus, the heartbeat of Jesus in our town, living a lifestyle of genuine love, loving what is good, loving each other, loving God, loving our neighbors, and yes, even loving those who hurt and malign us. That's what our Lord would do, and that's what He will do through us. We allow His Spirit to renew our thinking about love.